Welcome to Story Comic Presents, where we interview amazing storytellers and artists. This is episode 227. I'm your host, Barney Smith of StoryComic.com, and we're excited to have back with us the highly talented and internationally acclaimed freelance artist and comic creator, Jason Lennox. Hey, Barney. Thanks for having me back on after, what, 170 episodes? I show back up. I know. See, I know. It's I. You was doing the math as we we're talking before we went on the air that you were on in February of 2021. So it's almost two years ago since you yeah. were on talking about your Lords of the Cosmos books, which I got all four. I got all four yes. issues up here, and very excited about it. And what I got to say before we do a deep dive and talk about it for the folks that are unfamiliar with Lords of the Cosmos, what I love about this, it's all 80s nostalgia about a, an IP that you've never read before. Uh, for those that are might be unfamiliar with with Lords of the Cosmos, do you want to kind of talk about the, uh, the series that you've produced so far? Sure. So I'll give my little pitch that I would give people at shows. So imagine all the 80s properties you thought might have been cool. Masters of the Universe, Thundar the Barbarian, Silverhawks, right? Jason the Wheeled Warriors. But what if the editorial team from Warhammer 40K was actually in charge <laughs> of the book. And it was in the format of 2000 AD, black and white short stories. And the characters were all from an IP from the 80s that was really big and then just fell off the face of the earth. And now it's under new management. If you put all that together as a concept, that's what you're getting in Lords of the Cosmos. So you use buzzwords. I had a creator recently say you shouldn't compare your book to anything because that's a cheat and you should just tell them what it really is. And I was like, yeah, but in shorthand terms, isn't it easier to tell people things that are widely known to bring them in? So if you're like Silverhawks, I know that I, I like that. Right. Or, you know, 2000 AD, I thought that was a really awesome anthology. I loved reading that kind of stuff. You know, Warhammer 40K is crazy. Like, I like that, you know, so so all those buzzwords, right? Like, if you're like, okay, cool. Like, I like black and white anthologies. Like, that's cool. Like, yeah, like, I love that 80s stuff. And I like Warhammer because it's kind of weird and, like, really overly detailed and, like, this massive rabbit hole you can get into. And what you kind of touched on is, like, Game of Thrones that with Lords of the Cosmos, when we jumped into it, we had an idea. The first issue, I think, is the most imperfect of the bunch because we were trying to understand what we were doing. Um, that book's been out long enough now that I, I could sit in and probably give it a pretty harsh critique, but it's my baby. So I have to give it some love at the same time and understand that when you launch something like that, it may not be perfect in the first run, but I think by about issue three, we really kind of hit our stride with what we were trying to do. And, you know, issue four, I think was the best one of the bunch. I think issue five is going to surpass that, but wow. You know, again, like you described, this book drops you into this IP, but we treat it very seriously. Um, we really wanted to give some A plus horror science fiction, uh, you know, fantasy uh, 80s inspired stories with different artists and different writers to really let um, a diverse group of creatives really feel out our space and to help us explore the universe that we created. But it was a lot of just, you know, stubs. And, you know, for me, one of the most exciting parts has been watching some, you know, very limited ideas that we had be built into fully realized characters. Um, and in many cases, taking some of the background characters that we knew we wanted to make bigger roles, but letting people really run with them and right. encouraging other voices to get involved. 
And uh, it's just been really exciting. And for me, it's cool because I'm seeing all the stuff that we haven't done yet. And, you know, for Lords of the Cosmos fans or people that haven't heard of this before, you know, the one we're working on now is issue five. Um, I had to put together a report from my from my co-creators in the book, Dennis and Jason. Everything we have going on for issues five, six, seven and eight and zero. So right now we have most of issue five done, a big chunk of issue six done and a big part of issue zero done because during COVID, we started just doing a lot of kind of short stories, the character origins that we thought were pretty radical. And they, and we ended up not having space for them in the ongoing book. So we just figured we'd go back to the beginning. And one of the, the crown jewels is we, we actually figured out why they're called Lords of the Cosmos. So that'll be a big thing coming in issue zero where it's like, we had to think of why the hell are these guys calling themselves that? And we right. came up with a pretty good solution uh, that I co-wrote with my friend Brendan Hikes, who's a writer out of Pittsburgh that I've known for many years, super talented. He helped me co-write, uh, or he he you know co-wrote it with me, right? And and we'll get to the bottom of why that why are these guys called Lords of the Cosmos, and why do they look like they look like? And uh, right. we had a pretty creative solution that'll come out in issue zero. But no, it's 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 a fun as hell book, and you know part of the challenge is just to try to get more people to take a minute and stop and read it. Obviously you did Barney and you, you kind of got a little, I hope maybe a little, or maybe a lot hooked on what we're trying to do. Right. It's a hell of a fun book, man. Right. What I love about it. And I was just, you know, uh, pulling up for, for those, for the video audiences, for the audio audiences, I'll, I'll link that link this image in the, in the show notes, but issue three really is the, the, the point where you actually, for those that are fans of it, you actually, have the entire setup of all the character names and this is the stuff that really takes me back to the 80s where you can actually see you know the size of the characters and who the characters are and the names and it and as you say it really reminds me a lot of all those 80s ips where you have this fun play on words of the characters but one thing that i really wanted to talk to you about which i wasn't able to talk to you last time when you were on the show is you did something interesting. Issue one and issue two, you 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 start off with the villains being the main characters in the comics. And it's not until further down where you start learning more about the Lords of the Cosmos before it's all about the disciples of Umex is what mm -hmm. the... Um, so what was that from a creative, from a writing standpoint? Why, why did you decide as a writer to let's focus on the villains first? So the way that the story started was probably one of the strangest, and I don't know if I would recommend anybody doing it, but when Dennis and Jason and I started talking this in late 2015 and started putting it together in early 2016, the only thing we had was just a, we we just created character stubs. So it was like a heroes, mm -hmm. villains, and just basically names and descriptions. And then we kind of tiered them like main characters, you know, secondary, and then like kind of background characters. And, and was just like, we just have this, like, a Bible of names. Um, so, you know, it was kind of a whose line is it anyway of like, okay, so here are these characters and we, we mucked around with their names. And then during early 2016, all I did was I just drew a series of pinups with these characters in little groups. And that was it. It was just like, well, here's, here's what they look like. And it was kind of this, well, here's a description, here's a name. And then I was like, okay, well, here's what these people look like. And then we had 13 pages of just, here's all these critters and creatures and i was a little pressed for time and we said well okay let's let's start to put these characters into motion 
And I said, well, I'm going to just save these images because I put a lot of work. We have to use them in the book. No waste, right? Haste makes waste. Right. So we can't waste this. And I remember Dennis said, I think it would be more exciting just to put the villains up front. Let's do that because it's different. So then the first issue is just this kind of uh, trope of like the villains are coming back to life and they're mentioning there was a war. So again, we were kind of exploring the space of, okay, what, what was going on? And we thought it'd be cool to have the heroes show up later. Right. And then as we started to put the book together, what had happened was the idea was I would just draw this singular story. And then the images of the characters started creating so many questions and thoughts about, well, okay, now we have these images and these descriptions. Who are these people? What are their interactions and relations? And uh, we kept pitching out ideas. And I remember I just said, I, I, I can't do all this stuff, but these are really good ideas. <laughs> and we kind of came to the conclusion of we have to let it go and bring on other people to draw it. It can't just be Jason, right? Cause that's a huge limiter. Cause I only have so much time. And so the first issue was like, well, let's have some extra stories. And that kind of became a cool format for us to let other people, you know, let's spotlight these characters. You know, you have a main story and there's little, little branches and they could right. be big branches depending on how big the side story is. Um, and we just thought it would be interesting to have the villains come out first. And then we started to kind of play with this backstory, you know, as it built uh, through issues one and two, that there was some cataclysmic first war where the heroes and villains basically knocked each other out as they were progressing in this war. And they're both like KO fighters and the villains have gotten off the mat first and the heroes really don't want to fight. So mm -hmm. we start to find that out in issue three, where like we start meeting the heroes and like, they don't really seem into fighting anymore. They're basically living in a fortress of solitude type place and they don't want to fight. Um, and again, there's been really weird things that have happened in this creative process where uh, I remember I wanted to draw their fortress and I tried to draw a bunch of statues like this hall of heroes. And I'll be honest, I struggled to draw it because it was so complicated and I got lazy and I just drew one, I just drew one character, uh, one statue. And then I had the hero looking at it because for the most part, I just kind of have a loose idea of where each issue goes. And then I draw pictures and then the guys come back and do the script later, which is again, horrible. Um, I'm lazy. <laughs> Uh, it's like I'm just drawing stuff in my head and making notes of like, and then writers go back and like make these people. Talk. I mean, it's it's embarrassing how backwards the process has been on this book, right? Because uh, they cater to me because they they love me, right? And <laughs> you know, like it's just this kind of meandering process. And then we like the statue this guy was looking at, and we're like, what if that was his brother? And then what if you know, what if Umex killed his brother? So there's been this kind of like, oh wow, that's a hap that's another happy accident because I was too. Uh, overwhelmed trying to draw 20 statues, so I just drew one. You know, right. and the writers are starting to say, Well, what's going on with that? And why is that guy here? And so, again, it's a you know, whose line is it anyway kind of writing in this main story where we're kind of like exploring the space with the characters and learning how they interact. So, you know, in issue four, you know, we had a main story and, and there, there wasn't as much evil in it. And I remember right. Dennis said we have to we have to have the the bad guys show up again in the story. And then we we're like, well, why? And we've really fallen in love with Cycorn's character, and he gets shot in issue three, right? right. And then we have this whole thing where we're like, well, what if he shows up and they're really angry that he didn't kill the eagle in issue uh, two and three? Right. And so, you know, and we said, well, which character would it be cool for him? Like another character betrays him. We said we liked Mordanix. And Mordanix had just been a background character, the cyborg with the big acid tank. Right. And 
Jason and I sat down and then wrote this big complicated backstory for him for issue four. Uh, you know, and then and then we basically took this character that was just kind of a character design, like, okay, here's this model on the model sheet, right, Barney, that you like. And it's like we 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 completely filled him up with like this crazy backstory and tied him into a backer character. And uh, you know, he's become one of the 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 really fascinating villains of the book, but at first we didn't really know what he was. Um, I know mm. one of the artists, uh, Dave Newbold, that's worked with us a couple times. He's described working in the book as wandering around in a sandbox with a flashlight and discovering what we've hidden in it because there's things in there that we don't even know we've hidden in there. And it's been really fun to, you know, watch people kind of build these characters from just stubs. Right. So one of the big critiques on issue one is there's just all these pinups of these characters. Where the hell are the heroes? Right. Well, the heroes are going to get right. their pinup shot in like issue six because the, all those 13 pinups, the other half of them haven't gotten used. But we kept saying we got to earn it. We got to earn their way to showing off like when they all show up. Right. Because we wanted to give them like a big, you know, these guys are kind of like they've not won the war. They they've kind of lost or tied and they right. basically given up. So the heroes have, are slowly kind of getting off the mat and they'll get their big pinup room to shine from pages that I drew in 2016. That'll come out at some point in you know 2023 or 2024 when we get those <laughs> ready to go. So yes, it's been, Barney, it's been one of the most backwards, uh, not, uh, I'm not recommending it. I'm not really proud of it. Like talking about it, I'm like, God, this even sounds convoluted to talk about. <laughs> it, it is what it is, right? Um, right. But it's been fun. I've really grown to love the characters. I've grown to love the story. I see the ending around issue eight. Um, I could actually see the ending kind of being about halfway in and it's kind of exciting to me because I've been doing it for so long now that like, it's just, you know, stick to it, you know? Right. Well, because also, I mean, they're, they're thick comics. They're not yeah. your 22 or 32 or 22 page, no. you know, normal. It's they're big. They're now, about 40, 40 interior to 44 interior pages on in each one. Right. I mean, so when you're looking at it, when I got right now with four issues already here, I mean, I'm already holding like 160 pages almost of yeah. Lords of the Cosmos. Now, it's interesting, as you said, it's it's a little bit pieces of it's like an anthology, but it's also a running story. You actually have the first half of it basically is is the main storyline that you're continuing on. But then you have, as you say, the last half of it are these an era of like anthology stories where you focus on small backstories of, of tertiary characters, which I yes. love. So for those that are listening to this, so artists and writers that might be listening to this, that might have a, have created a pretty substantial world of their own. What level of recommendation would you give them on how to do something similar to this by telling a story and also having mm. some anthology pieces to it? It's a great question. Um, I'd say the biggest part to it is be really organized because the bigger and more in-depth it becomes, um, the more questions people will start having. So I know you mentioned that scale chart. Um, the reason we made that was, and I mentioned his name before, is David Newbold um, in, in his process of doing some of the pages for issue three said, I don't understand how big these characters are. Uh, you know, they six feet. 80 feet he goes it's not clear right so we had to you know think about that and said hmm okay like that's a great question so we hired a, an artist to to build that with you know we gave him as much you know information and he did a very good job 
uh, to build those, you know, size and reference charts. And we have them in color too. In the book, they're printed as black and white. But things like that have become handy to give to everyone, right? Hey, you're working on the book. Here's how big these guys are. Um, and one of the things that I did in the process of making that, I made a reference folder for every single character. So even the small ones have like two or three images. And then they're on the scale chart. Um, because the more that you make the world immersive, the more questions you have. So again, when I go back and look at issue one of Lords, it's kind of like sparse, mm -hmm. right? It's kind of like, it's kind of general strokes, but as it grows and builds, there's more callbacks. There's more characters that you see coming back and forth and, you know, keeping everyone straight, right? becomes complicated so one of the stories for issue five or i'm sorry issue zero is called seventh generation assassin so one of the stub mm -hmm. characters was a cat like a panther right that umex has called hexlore seven and by the time we see it in lords of the cosmos one it shows up in a pinup and it's like walking with all the villains it looks scary it has a certain like amount of robotics on it and jason wanted to give it a number as a, as a suffix which i thought was kind of cool and there was an, uh, a writer uh, named Liam um, from uh, the UK that was someone that I was friendly with in an anthology story group on Facebook. And, and we started talking about how he liked the books and he wanted to get a shot doing it. And he said, what's a character that I can run with? And I said, well, how about Hexalore 7, right? And he goes, so what's the, what do we know about this character, right? And... Um, and his name, full name is Liam Bryce Bateman. I wanted to make sure to give him a full, full shout out, right? Um, and I said, all we know about this character is that it has a seven. And I said, all I imagined was that there was seven versions of this cat and that at some point it keeps getting killed. And he goes, that's all you know. And I'm like, yeah. And then we see it in issue two when it's a different version, right, in the... Uh, in the uh, origin story for Obsidia, which is kind of like our version of uh, She-Ra and the Princess of Power, right? Like the like the girl toy story um, where the Rainbow Knights fight uh, <clears throat> Umex's uh, soldiers because one of them has betrayed them. Like one of the girls has become evil. And there's a, a different version of Hexalore in there. So I shot him that. And he literally built this wild story that an artist named Dino Egor is drawing for us now. And uh, where we show every version of this cat. And it was so cool because when Liam wrote it and Dino drew it, they went back to the fourth version from that story and showed us how that version got killed. And those guys were running with the other things that Danny had drawn when, you know, Danny Zemba had drawn uh, Nights Out, the, the right. story for Prism and Obsidian. So, again, when you work with talented people and all these people I'm name dropping, they're all super talented, right? I think a lot of them are probably more talented than me. They're smart. And they're and they're good at taking those little cues and they're good at helping us make it better. So now you're like, okay, well, I see Hexlor when he was this way in this in issue two, it all comes together. But it's my job, it's kind of like now like the master editor to catch these little continuity things and be like, remember when was this version? He had an eyepiece in this thing, right? Because those are the things the more you build this expansive world, is like you want it to try to all make sense. Right. So again, going back to that first issue, we referenced there was a war. Okay. Mm -hmm. Well, now in my head, I actually kind of have a good idea of when that war happened. And, uh, you know, Dennis, one of the Dennis Fallon, one of the co-creators, he, he actually has now written 
uh, a little bit of the Bible for the characters that goes back like a million years. And in issue three, we go back a quarter million years, but we are, we are one of the stories we have written, but not drawn goes back a million years now. And some of the characters will be revealed to be a million years old. Right. And then like, and then when we saw these plants that were like fighting with swords was like the post-apocalypse for this like grand futuristic past. And then like, now we're in this kind of like He-Man world. So again, just, but it's all come from these stub characters where it's like, Hey, there's a, you know, a plant in a machine. Okay. Like no, no one knew what the characters were. So, you know, again, for Liam to take that cat and flesh him out in a living Lords of the Cosmos universe was so exciting because he was someone that we just kind of met along the way. And he was a real fan of the book, but you know, Liam's a hell of a writer. So, I mean, like to see him take that character and, I'm excited for people to read that story when it hits, you know, hits print. So when it comes to that, like how, cause you, you have a lot of people helping you out on this. So from a business perspective, do you have them sign contracts? Who owns the IP? So for instance, like when you, when you, when you brought up that example with Liam and he writes, he, he writes up a good backstory of Hexalor, who owns that backstory now? Is that, is that so, something that, how does that work? So one of the first things before you start a business is you got to think about the legal end of it. So when we created the comic characters, the basic uh, gist of it back in 2016, uh, we got my sister-in-law, who's an attorney, to write a a legal agreement for the three of us that were owners to define like a percentage of ownership. And we even had to write out things like media deals and if this becomes a movie and if this becomes this and, and all these things. Right. Right. And we signed it. And. I had some people say, what are you doing all that for? You know, you ain't making a movie. And I'm like, you got to treat it like it's a success. Because even though the odds would say it won't happen, plan like it will, right? So great question. So what you should do with every interaction, whether it's Liam or whether it's Dino, you should have a contract. And contracts spell out things like what you're being paid. Mm -hmm. It also spells out who owns things. Right. So we just use a basic work for hire contract that says you you understand you're working on our characters and anything you create in this, we own. And then there's like language about how we own it in other media, because what you don't want to have happen. Liam creates uh, some background character in our story and, and that becomes a huge hit. And then he's like, but I own it. Right. And, right. and at the time when this when we did our original creators ownership agreement, you know, Walking Dead was in the news because there was a huge legal battle between uh, the original writer and artist that the artist had left after so many issues to go do is another project. And then the walking dead blows up and, uh, the, uh, the, uh, artist was like, well, I'm, I'm co-owner. And the writer was like, nah, you are a subcontractor. And I know they had to go to court because I guess it wasn't clear. And look, I don't know. I don't know the truth, right? I don't know if walking dead was a partnership or if the artist was a subcontractor. Like I'm not, I don't know. But I remember thinking, like, you don't want to be like those guys and screaming at each other. Because, look, if you if you hit some massive payday because you did a great right. job, the last thing you want is it for to turn into a tragedy where it's like, no, I hate my partners because I'm the owner and they don't own it, right? So right. we have our ownership agreement between, you know, Dennis, Jason, and myself. And then for everyone we work with, we do uh, a you know, a subcontractor work for hire agreement. I'll give you two great examples. Um, 
one the other week, there was an artist that I wanted to hire from the UK to do a story for issue zero, click six pages. And he disagreed about giving us the original pages because we've always asked for the original art. People always give it to us after we pay them. Um, he goes, no, I'm not going to give you this. And I said, well, we don't want to work with you then. And, and you know what? He, said, I, he goes, well, I disagree with it. And I said, I disagree with it. But there was no hard words because here's right. the thing. It was just about right. we disagreed and we yeah. didn't sign a contract. Now, we're, if we if we were just playing loose, the guy does all the work. And I said, well, can I get the originals? And he goes, no. Right. right. And then, like you ask it on the upfront. And he was a wonderful artist, but we just didn't agree. So I got someone right. else to come on and do it. Right. Um, but by having a process of trying to do things ethically, legally, and right, correctly, right. you weed those things out. And is that guy wrong? No, I support his right to ask for that as I support my right to disagree. Right. And all we said was we will not move forward, but that would have been unpleasant had we not had a contract of like, well, who owns this? Right. Right. Yeah. Um, and we had another barely, and again, here's another Lords of the Cosmos rabbit hole, right? Uh, one of the characters in the Bible, the original Bible for all the characters was a character called Green Man. Um, Green Man was a guy that I met at comic conventions that would come in full costume. I never saw his face head to toe. He did a lot of stuff for charity, but he was kind of a really fun, crazy convention guy. Um, right. Got cancer, or no, uh, heart attack? Yeah, I believe it was a heart attack. He died very suddenly. And I said, let's shoehorn this guy into the book because he's a nice guy and we can make him a character. And everyone said, sure. And he wore a baseball cat and a, uh, a cape and like his underwear on his over his pants. He looked really silly. He doesn't, he, he did not really fit in with the characters in Lords of the Cosmos, but we just shoehorned him in. And he's in the Bible. If you look, he's down there. He's green man, right? We actually had a, a really good idea for his story. What will be an issue? He'll be in issue six. His his origin story is in issue six. We solved the riddle of how to fit this guy in, and I'm very proud of that story because uh, I co-wrote it with uh, Jason Palmatier, um, one of the co-creators. Um, we reached out to his sister, who's a really talented artist, to uh, draw the story. One of the things we did with her, and and I'm sorry, with, with them and, and their family. Uh, was to, we had a lawyer get involved to say, who who owns the rights to this guy's image? And what we don't want to do is rock the apple cart with his image in the family. So we actually mm -hmm. had a lawyer kind of like mediate with us and the family to make an agreement. And then I kind of got an education about like ownership and then like uh, fair use and uh, parody. And then we have an agreement that we own the rights to him as the character and Lords of the Cosmos, but we don't own the right to his image if they use it for fundraising. Um, it's pretty cool. Um, right. and, and, and we and then we made a contract um, to to do that story, um, which, again, will be an issue six. But again, we ended up trying to use a real life person in the book. And there was a process. And, and again, the correct process was to take the time, ask an attorney, how does this work? Who owns this guy? Because he looks, right. he has a Lords of the Cosmos logo in our story, but in real life, he didn't have that. So, I mean, <laughs> who owns Green Man, right? Well, we got to the bottom of it and, and we have our right to use him in our limited format, but we don't own him, which was cool. And again, that way there's no hard feelings. Right. If you do it, you do it on the upfront. Now, again, do other creators do this on small books? I have no idea, right? But if they're not, 
you know, they should. Hmm. Uh, but it's a really good question that you asked there, I think. And again, just, you know, what is the legality doing it ethically, doing it properly, legally? Like, you know, how do you do it? Now, so as you mentioned earlier, it's 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 such an immersive rabbit hole that you've created for Lords of the Cosmos as an IP. Now, talk about the actual logistics of like some of the the actual product itself, that Lords of the Cosmos as a product. How much of a rabbit hole because of your homage to 80s culture? Because you do have like on the back of it, you do have like the pretend that you have action figures and is there anything else that you you know for your either for your kickstarter or for your etsy store any other actual physical pieces that people could start collecting that have the lords the cosmos ip uh you know right now we just have an enamel pin that's it i mean there are a ton of things we could do we were talking a little bit about 3d printing before the show um to me the the resource that we run out of is time Mm-hmm. Um, I get so far behind the eight ball, just trying to create pages and the covers and everything else that like, you just start to run out of time. Like, I think it'd be fun to do a fake video game mock-up like the Lords of the Cosmos, you know, Nintendo cartridge or like the Lords of the Cosmos Sears catalog page, uh, <laughs> That'd be awesome. the Lords of the Cosmos role-playing game or board game. Um, and again, uh, I'm open to all those ideas. So if anyone's like, Hey man, I like to design a board game cover. Hey, I'll pay you. You know what I mean? Like, we'll, right. we'll do a contract. We'll figure something out. But like, um, I won't say the creator's name because he's always been nice to me, but there is a comic book that I have followed now for nine years that never got made. <laughs> I always roll my eyes because I know the creator's talented guy. He would always say these things. Well, I had to go back and change uh, the one character's hair in like 30 panels or I wanted to change their expression on seven panels. Right. There was always these excuses about, you know, I have to make these minor changes. Look, there's there's never a perfect project. And at some point you have to weigh getting it done in quality. And at some point there's going to be errors on the pages. Right. So it was a perfect, perfect is the enemy of good or something like that. Yes. I forget the quote, but I know what you mean. Uh, Perfect is the enemy of good, right? Or getting it done. So, you know, to me, I will take time to try to get more of these things done. And I just keep notes and documents to remind me of all these ideas so I don't forget them. Um, I saw a guy that does anime art fairly inexpensively. I'm going to hire him to do an anime uh, image of Lords of the Cosmos. I'm going to have my friend do it like a VHS box, <laughs> right? For an alternate cover. Like it was the Lords of the Cosmos anime. So if I can pick those things up easily, I will do them. But again, right. it's the logistics of how much time do I have is kind of like the guy at the center of the web to get it done. And right. you can get just bogged into a million things where it's like, I got to get these issues done. You mentioned before we went live, you had a really good response to when issue five is coming out. And I wanted to actually talk to you about that live. Yeah. Um, with the pre-launch. Yeah. It's a, I've never talked to a creator that's done that. And I think it's actually fairly brilliant. So I give Kickstarter a lot of credit because I do think they are always trying to do a better job. And one of the most significant changes that they've made was the pre-launch right where you can set up a project 
And the Kickstarter for Lords 5 is a shell. I wouldn't show it to anybody. It's, there's nothing. There's just some images and a little bit of text. But Kickstarter approved it. And now you can say, I want to follow that project. And mm -hmm. what that means is that everyone that follows it gets an email like the second it goes live. Then if they don't back it by the end of the campaign, they get an email that's 72 hours out or 48. And they get an email with like eight hours to go. So they get hit with three emails. Wow. And I think as we watch crowdfunding, and I've been doing them now for like a decade, right? My first one was in 2012. So it's been, I've done 12 Kickstarters in 10 years, is that it's evolving. So the big thing is now is to have a big burst, big first day, big, big first two days. And I think what they've done is they've really helped creators get that burst, right? Because you got it, you want to have that big jump out of the gate, gets the metrics going. It looks better to other people. Uh, if the project's doing better, then, you know, it's like, well, if it's going good, I want to back it because I'll get the book, right? Um, and if you follow crowdfunding, Barney, and I don't know how close you follow it, I've noticed there's a lot of creators struggling right now just to raise small amounts of money, $1,000, $2,000, um, I think the market is incredibly saturated right now. And I think people are struggling to hit even very modest, uh, modestly achievable goals. You know, I think anything you can do as a creator to give yourself a leg up, I'm just promoting the pre-launch just slowly in the background. Hey, if you like it, you know, check it out. I just sent an update out today to my mailing list with a couple new pages to check out from the three stories in the new book. And uh, yeah, I hope people, you know, start, you know, looking at those pages. They're really good. Um, there's three stories in the new book. And if you want, we can kind of give you a quick overview of those three stories, but I gave everyone a little teaser from each story. Yeah. And yeah. So you want to hear the scoop on the next book? Yeah, sure. So there's three stories. There's the main story and the main story is how the heroes are now being assembled. Right. So at the end of issue four, the main hero gets his sword that wants to kill people and they've now decided to re-raise their army and, they go to the top of their building and they fire off three lightning bolts that travel around the world to where all their living soldiers are. It's like, a, it's like the bat symbol, right? Like, Oh man, they fired it up. So we start to see all these characters. Like they're, they talk about having armies in the past. Well, now it's down to like, you know, about 14 characters, right? Like a, a toy set, right? They're all dead except what you could collect as a kid. So the lightning finds all these characters kind of like hiding out. Some of them have bases. Some of them are like kind of living in their natural habitats all around the world but we're just tracking this lightning and the lightning as it tracks around the world goes to the villains right and this issue starts to like one of the weird things about lords is the spotlight goes from umax to obsidia to orcamemnon to Aegis. well this issue is the zemba issue and okay. if you remember zemba she's in issue two she's in uh the origin story for Mindozer, where she is running their death initiation to get into the Disciples of Umex, and she gets she gets punked by a guy's mind control. Right. And she just, the lightning runs over her, and she is kind of a dominatrix death priestess for the bad guys, and she is just wandering into this torture camp where, if you remember in issue four, Umex sentences Mordanix to take his arch uh, rival, Cycorn, and torture him. Right, presumably mm -hmm. to death. And Obsidia just, or I'm sorry, Zemba walks into this 
it gets really awkward and it kind of goes full gangster and there might be a little bit of betrayal and things start to go in a way that we don't understand, which leads us into the second story, a day in the life of Zemba. We've had okay. it for her for years where what does this character do on a day-to-day -day basis that tortures people to death and is just a mean, she's, she's mean, she's a mean lady. Right. And we made a story that is 24 hours of her from the time she gets up to the end of her day and her day is insane she has trees where she has people tortured in it she has gladiatorial games she gets her portrait painted and she has to go to a big business meeting with all the other bad guys and all they do is disrespect her and talk trash yeah uh and they really treat her incredibly poorly and we realized that by the end of the story, she may have a score to settle with a lot of people and she really isn't on board with what's going on. So again, if we're going to show maybe a betrayal in the main story, we got to show why is that? So Zemba, A Day in the Life is a story I'm really proud of. Uh, I co-wrote that with Brendan uh, from Pittsburgh, right? We've been kind of creative partners in some of these things. And uh, an artist uh, named Luigi Barancelli from Italy is drawing it, and he's super talented. So he's got about six pages drawn right now, and it's kind of like a cyberpunk, S and M science fiction. Right. She has her whole palace, and uh, it's it's horrific. And it's her right. day day in her life is scary. Uh, she has her little sidekick Worm, that's kind of like the audience's. Uh, voice asking a lot of questions and pushing her buttons and making her very angry um and then the third story is a story called pulse which is i've worked on for a while with uh my buddy dw Khan that does uh, lovecraft pi really great creator okay. from the new england area right and uh, uh so pulse is we wanted to take the lords of the cosmos characters and put them into an 80s action movie <laughs> um so it's kind of like Predator. It's kind of like Commando with a little touch of, you know, kind of like a war movie uh, where we just drop these characters into a scenario. And it's in a, and this is part one. And it plays like an 80s action film, but it's robots. It's, there's characters that are made up just for that story that mix with some of our core characters. So like, the talking cat we meet an issue for he's he's in it uh, but then there's a cowboy that's a lizard uh there's a tin man that looks like the tin man from the wizard of oz we call him robot with an axe uh there's an armored rhinoceros uh <laughs> and they end up hijacking a truck and they you know come in in a plane and uh, we have some backers from the issue two kickstarter that, that they paid to be characters they finally are in this book so there's like seven characters that are backers but they're mixed <laughs> in with some of the characters you say oh, i know bone saw he was in issue one right he's the guy that had the saw fern arm right but he shows up in it but zemba's in that story too so the villains we keep showing that the villains are villainous they don't get along so there's like multiple right. factions of villains that we meet in pulse that are at this military base and they all hate each other and they're very competitive and there's kind of a field sergeant or a field commander for uh <clears throat> for umex that uh we we patterned after dw the writer he's also in the story as a as half spider half human that's like a giant and uh yeah so i mean but zemba's in there as one of the leaders of one of these micro factions so this issue ended up being the zemba issue and that really wasn't planned but it ended up just being the place that it goes she'll fade off in issue six but like issue five ended up being the Zemba issue for, you know, just again, whose line sure. is it anyway? 
apparently it's Zemba's line, right? Because <laughs> she really becomes the spotlight character uh, in in a majority of the book. With her, right. she becomes the focus of like all these threads coming together because that's mm. what makes sense for us. That's cool. And, and we flushed her out. We really learn a lot about what motivates her and why she's important and why she doesn't like Mordanix and why she really doesn't like Umex anymore. And uh, I really felt it took a character that was kind of a, a character that was designed to look cool. Hey, we're going to put this girl with a whip. And uh, I think she's one of the deepest, most interesting characters in the book because like, we got to understand like why she's so angry. And then <clears throat> there's another backer character uh, called Lady Vi uh, that was introduced in issue four that dies. Well, the day in the life is before that. So she has a lunch meeting uh, with Zemba, which I think is a really cool part of the book where they're torturing Lords of the Cosmos POWs and like they're growing food out of one of them while he's alive and they're eating lunch out of his back. And they right. have a big talk about who's in, who's, who's in control and who tells them what to do. And uh, it's a, I think it's a really interesting story that looks cool too. So that's kind of what you got to look forward to in issue issue five. So where if, if people are interested in learning more about Lords of the Cosmos, what's the best place they could go to? So you can go to my Etsy store and you can pick up any of the back issues, right? You can just go buy right. them. Uh, you know, so that's Lennox Art Emporium on Etsy. You can just go there and buy them and I'll autograph them for you. When I do the next Kickstarter, you'll be able to get physical copies or PDFs on the Kickstarter. But yeah, what are they on there? $7 each, right? $7 each. And are you going to have a, at some point almost like a wiki page so, so people can kind of learn more about all the all the, the sea of characters you have? You know, that's another one of those things. If I had enough time, um, right. if I had enough time, I'd like to do a wiki page. I'd like to do a timeline and a map. Right. You know, where it's like, okay, all this stuff keeps happening. And it's like, when, where, what, how does this stuff happen in relation to this? And, and wait, when this person did this, now they're doing that. And again, the more we flesh it out, the more there is to keep track of. So it'd be really cool if anyone's really into that stuff and wants to organize a bunch of random characters. I'd love to right. talk to you, right? Um, I think that'd be an awesome idea, Barney. Um, maybe one day we'll do that. Yeah. Perfect. Yeah. Well, thanks a lot, Jason. You know, it's been great. You know, listen, you got to come on more often than just, you know, once every couple of years. So you got to come on again soon. Barney, anytime you want to have me on, just shoot me a note and I will be there for you, man. I appreciate you and I appreciate your show. I, I think you really have a love for this stuff and I appreciate your questions and your just love for things that are cool, man, that cool stuff that kids like. And we're all just big kids. That's right. Yeah. Thank you. All right. Well, thanks a lot again, Jason. Thanks, Barney. I appreciate you, man. Thanks, Story Comic audience. influence me oh hang on i oh. forgot to unplug my door chime sorry about that i'll have to edit this part out yeah no worries all right i got a oh, time stamp see there we go so that's we'll the one thing i did last time so i got a time stamp these things so then i edit it out later so it's we'll, we'll edit smooth. in some better interview answers later yeah <laughs> uh, or, or edit in some better interview questions later <laughs> I love the comedian Bill Hicks, and there's a show that he did in Pittsburgh before he died, where he people were just booing him. They just he was antagonizing him. He goes, "It's okay. We're gonna edit in some better audience reactions and jokes after the recording." You know. Yeah. <laughs> um, all right. So 
I, I guess three, two, one, back to the show, right? There you go. Um, there you go. Yeah. 